0: dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone, it's Reed. As you're listening to this, we are 48 weeks away from Election Day 2024. I know it seems like a long way away, but it's not. Now is the time, gang, to get involved. Join the union.us, linkinproject.us, or get involved with an organization in your community, guys. We cannot, cannot, cannot wait until the last minute to start this battle. Guys, we can, we must, and we will win, but only if we all work together. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Kosoff, author and associate professor of cybersecurity law in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. He is the author of over 20 academic journals and four books. His latest, which is now available wherever fine books are sold, is called Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation, which examines and defends legal protections for false speech. Jeff received a JD from Georgetown University Law Center and a BA in MPP, a Master's of Public Policy, from the University of Michigan, Go Blue. Today, he's coming to us from
1: Arlington, Virginia.
0: Jeff, welcome to the show thanks so much for having me. Well, as I was saying, I don't find many books that are usually smarter than me, but Jeff, congratulations. Your book is much smarter than I am. And I want to hit the key things that you're talking about in here. But first, let's talk with the title, Liar in a Crowded Theater. So there is this long, it's now become, I think, a trope, which is and it goes back to the Supreme Court, which you can talk to us about, but which is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? That there are limits to the First Amendment's protection of somebody saying anything and everything they want. And the idea being, yelling fire in a crowded theater could create panic in which someone could get hurt for no reason other than someone's irresponsibility or malice. So, Take us to the beginning of these arguments, and then I have a few specific questions I want to ask you about the law and the First Amendment, but tell us why you can't be a liar who
1: yells fire in a crowded theater, or maybe you can be. Sure, well, again, thanks for having me, and I just have to give a quick disclaimer that everything I say is on my personal capacity and not on behalf of the DOD or Navy or Naval Academy. Uh, Getting that out of the way, fire in a crowded theater is something that actually emerged in sort of popular dialogue about 100 years ago. In uh, 1919, to be exact, there was a socialist in Philadelphia who was handing out pamphlets on the street corner that basically said that the military draft was unconstitutional. It was a very bad legal argument, but by modern standards, it wouldn't be something the government could punish. But this was a different time, and the government did uh, jail him for... Handing out these pamphlets, saying that it was a clear and present danger to national security to hand out these pamphlets, and it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, which unanimously holds that in fact this was not protected by the First Amendment. And uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, basically trying to justify this, says, "You know, not everything is protected by the First Amendment. Just as you can't shout falsely shout fire in a theater and cause a panic, you also cannot distribute this material." And pretty soon, fire in a crowded theater caught on whenever anyone wanted to justify regulating speech that they don't want. And the truth is, with fire in a crowded theater, there are times when you actually might face a disorderly conduct citation or something like that if you actually do intentionally lie about a fire and cause a panic. We have, just like you can't call it a bomb threat there's a lot of carve-outs, but they're narrowly defined. And that is what the fire in a crowded theater folks really miss. They think that, you know, this is a wild card that whenever you don't like speech, you can just say, oh, fire in a crowded theater, the government can regulate it. And that's not the case. The Supreme Court has repeatedly stated uh, sort of under the current First Amendment doctrine, which is quite good, that we have narrow carve-outs. But other than that, speech is by default protected by the First Amendment. Right. And just while we're
0: talking about lines from the Supreme Court, maybe this same decision, clear and present danger has also become something that is overused probably and almost completely out of context in any given time. Sure.
1: So in 1969, the Supreme Court really changed the clear and present danger test to a much higher standard being imminent incitement of lawless action. So effectively, the First Amendment standards from 1919 have been replaced by much more rigorous protections. And really, in the past 50 years since even that replacement, the Supreme Court has provided even more First Amendment protections. So that's why the fire in a crowded theater phrase is so meaningless when you're trying to actually have a discussion about the First Amendment. So a lot of the beginning of
0: the book as you're going through various court cases again, this one in 1919, and I think Jeff, one thing not for this episode, but for another discussion maybe with you and others, is how crazy the United States was in many political respects during the late 19 teens and the early 1920s. Right? It was, I mean, it was pretty nuts. But you know, you have this idea of also of the marketplace of ideas, and that there's always been this belief, and I think we should understand too, you know, context matters here, is that. In the time when a lot of these early decisions were being made, I should say, a century ago now, we didn't have the mass media we have now. We did have newspapers, which had proliferated since the beginning of the republic and before. But you know, radio maybe was early. Certainly, no television. You know, the internet would have been something that only you know Ray Bradbury or someone would have written about, and even not that early. And so, you know, let's talk about this: is that you know the idea that it's an open marketplace of ideas. That the truth will you know will win out, and that you know people will understand and be able to intuit as part of a free and open society what's true and what's not
1: Yeah, so that marketplace of ideas actually also came from Oliver Wendell Holmes also in 1919, but there was about an eight month gap, so he talked about the fire in a crowded theater, uh, it got a lot of attention and criticism and. The Supreme Court went on a summer recess and he spent a lot of the summer with some free speech advocates at Harvard and he came back that fall and he dissented in a very similar case involving someone being prosecuted for criticizing U.S. military policy. And this time he was in the dissent and he really wrote this beautiful passage about the best test of truth being on the, on the open market and the idea that the truth will rise to the top. And that's really set the frame, even though it was a dissent, it really set the framework for so much of the Supreme Court's current First Amendment thinking.
0: Right, And, you know, so as we think about this, too, as we, you know, we move into the ideas, a, a fair amount of the book is spent on freedom of the press, right? What the press is responsible for as far as what it's printing, the subjects within an article, i.e., if you are a newspaper or an outlet and you print a statement from a figure of authority, a sheriff or a member of Congress or something that turns out to be false, the paper is not liable for the lack of clarity or precision or truthfulness, even, right? Because they were taking it from an official source in practice. But there's a lot of this where time and time again, the media the press at the time it was the press because it was the printing press is protected which i 100% am behind but you also have a chapter and this is one that to me is more interesting and i think important is the responsibility aspect which is if you know that you have a i don't want to say there's no absolutes in life jeff but if you have a significant level of protection from libel obviously prior restraint any sort of, you know, not necessarily prosecution, but any sort of civil action, you know, there's a heck of a lot of responsibility that needs to come along with that.
1: Well, there is. And what I actually argue for is more responsibility on the part of the recipient of the information. And I think that some of our court cases really clearly articulate it, but it's too often left out in the current discourse that. A lot of the debate about misinformation or disinformation or whatever anyone wants to call it at any particular time focuses on how do we stop the speech from happening. And I think that too often it really short sells the faith in the people who are reacting to the speech. And I think, you know, if you believe nonsense on the internet and you go out and do something illegal, you should face the consequences for that. That's common sense. And to just sort of wave your hands and say, I I fell for misinformation. I I think we need to give people more agency than is too often given in the current debate. You know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. If you're going to believe some random thing on a forum and take a harmful action, that, that could have some consequences. Well, and this, I guess, is is one of the points, which
0: is, you know, I think back to my uh, my Mr. Spock, Jeff, right? The good of the many outweighs the good of the one or the few. But to your point, to just expand on that, if a young man has written and has been radicalized online through various channels, whether or not it's 4chan or Rumble or YouTube or whatever the case might be, and then decides to go into a largely black supermarket and gunned down 10 people because he believed in the great replacement theory. Yes, he is responsible because he has taken the act, but where is the justice for the people who were
1: killed and their families? Are they victims of freedom? Yeah. So I think that's a really important question. And I I think that the problem with saying that the solution is to sort of focus on the supply of the speech focus on stopping the speech from ever happening is that, frankly, it's history has shown it's not effective in a variety of contexts. When you censure or when you try to impose a punishment for speech outside, there there are certain categories where you can. So, if you actually meet the bar for defamation, you might have to pay money. If you lie in court, you could go to jail. But I think that having a sweeping censorship regime of certain types of speech that we find abhorrent. And I think hate speech would be one of them. I think that the two main problems is first, that they're always susceptible for abuse by the people in power. And the second is that they just don't work very well. There's a concept, I don't know if you've heard of the Streisand effect. Oh, sure.
0: Of course, we use it to great effect here at the Lincoln Project, Jeff. Don't you worry.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sure you do. And I think that that was a lawsuit Barbara Streisand filed against a photographer who took a picture of her very beautiful estate. And because she filed the lawsuit, it went from a very small number of viewers to much larger. Now everybody knows what Barbara's house looks like. Exactly. And and this is actually something that Tocqueville wrote about when he was justifying broad free speech protections that, you know, once you start to license the press and punish the press for bad information, you draw far more attention than if you just pay attention to it. So I think there are a variety of reasons why it's tempting. I, I get it. It is very tempting. There's a lot of really abhorrent speech out there. But I think that censorship and penalties by the government and by courts, the cure
0: Visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O D O O dot com slash Lincoln. ODOO, modern management made simple. You mentioned defamation. So as we're recording this this week, Jeff, I saw a, a headline somewhere that Rupert Murdoch, I don't know if he's chair emeritus or whatever it is, he is a Fox News, Fox, uh, you know, News Corp. Will be sitting for a deposition in their second big defamation case against the Smartmatic voting machine company which is going to be, you know, several billion dollars more money if Smartmatic wins. They settled with Dominion voting systems for about eight hundred million dollars. They didn't go to trial, obviously, but Dominion had it had them pretty dead to rights that the things that their hosts were saying about the 2020 election and specific to these voting systems. In the likes of Sidney Powell saying, you know, it was something that, you know, Hugo Chavez, long dead in Venezuela, had some involvement with, and they did pay a financial price. And you see now that they're likely to pay another financial price, but they haven't really stopped. They're back at it. And, you know, so I guess my question is this, and this goes to maybe I'm gonna call it the bulletin board theory. There's probably some more legal in August theory of like, okay, you're right. Like, no one has to watch Fox News. No one has to go on Twitter. No one has to go on Instagram. No one has to go to these places. But people do. And so if I had a bulletin board in, the, in a college dorm and someone, and we knew who the someone was, let's call them Bob, kept putting up the same three by five card that said something awful, I guess my question is this, who's responsible? Is it Bob for saying something awful or is it the college dorm? who puts the bulletin board up because in the cases of many of these places, it's not just a matter of whether or not they can do it. They're actually going out to spread falsehoods about whether or not it's the 2020 election or covid or
1: whatever the case might be purely to drive a political perspective. Well, so. I think Fox and Dominion is a great example where we we don't know for sure what would have happened had it gone to trial, but it was certainly heading in the direction of Fox likely losing because there were a lot of rulings that the judge made from the bench that made it pretty impossible to overcome before I went into academia. I was a journalist and a media lawyer where I represented media outlets when they received complaints about defamation and reading the Fox Dominion case documents was my worst nightmare as a media defense lawyer because just the voluminous text messages and emails that showed actual malice where you, you don't normally see that. But I mean, this is basically like put it in the actual malice folder. That's how much it is. And that's a case where, you know, defamation protections are strong in the United States. And I think there's very good reason for that. But they're not absolute. I mean, for Fox, I I mean, I can't speak for Fox, but I would assume that was a very painful settlement and they might have additional monetary penalties. So I think this shows that it's not that the First Amendment or free speech protections are absolute. I sometimes get called a free speech absolutist, which is ridiculous because nobody seriously argues that free speech protections are absolute. What I'm arguing is that we need to be very cautious before further narrowing those protections because of the crisis of today. And I mean, interestingly, uh, the two most powerful people arguing to potentially eliminate the protections that could possibly have saved Fox are Justices Thomas and Gorsuch. There's a court case, New York Times versus Sullivan, which set the actual malice standard, which makes it much more difficult for public figures and public officials to file defamation lawsuits.
0: Believe me. I feel it
1: personally. You have no idea. Yes, I'm sure you do. But I think that you do have a number of smart conservative commentators out there who are arguing you know, maybe this is not a great path to go down because this could really hurt a lot of conservative media.
0: Well, it obviously would because they truck and falsehoods uh, not exclusively but extensively um but what about let, let me ask you this let me let me reach into not into your job but into your world where does like the internet research agency in saint petersburg russia like if they're dropping stuff onto twitter that they know will get to american voters or if they are driving traffic onto facebook that they know will ramp up a certain kind of voter do they have the same kinds of protections once they drop that onto something that is on an American account?
1: Well, so I mean, that that's obviously a really sort of complex and a lot of unsettled issues there. Uh, well, no, the IRA does not have its own First Amendment protections. Uh, there is a First Amendment right to receive information that the Supreme Court has recognized for decades. And I think that would play heavily into any U.S. government efforts to suppress certain types of information that come from foreign countries. And then there's also the issue of the First Amendment rights of social media platforms. And that's actually something the Supreme Court will be addressing this term in cases that it's granted certain.
0: You know, let's let's talk about that. So, and I say this I have absolute bias, Jeff. I want to I want to stipulate to that. But let's talk about someone like an Elon Musk. I mean, you could make the argument that Musk is sort of a ran, you know, William Randolph Hearst of the 21st century. He owns the platform on which he spends a great deal of time. We know that he decides, you know, he can decide what does and doesn't appear. And I guess, is is it sort of, you know, buyer beware if we choose to be there? The terms of service buried somewhere in the fine print says, if we don't like something you say, we can take it down. We know they do, right? But is he able to do that as the owner of that platform? Is he able to decide on our behalf, right? Not only as a user, but let's say a viewer,
1: what we can and can't see. Well, that's something the Supreme Court's going to provide more clarity on because it granted cert in a case where it's looking at these Texas and Florida laws that basically restrict the circumstances in which platforms can moderate certain content. They vary, but the overall gist of it is, can a state, or I guess even the federal government, say you must carry certain content and you can't remove it? And uh, the closest precedent we have is a case from the 1970s where The Supreme Court struck down a Florida law that said a newspaper can't be forced to publish a response letter to the editor. Now, I personally believe that Facebook, Twitter, X, or whatever it's called now, all of the platforms should have the ability to make those decisions about outside of illegal content, obviously. Uh, And there, there is illegal content that they can't carry, but outside of those narrow categories they should set their own policies and win or lose on the open market. So if you allow too much garbage on your platform, then you might see users go away. On the flip side, if you are overly aggressive in taking down speech, people might find it to be too heavily moderated and they also might go away. And I mean, that's what we want. We want to see different approaches. And obviously it's not a perfect market because you have network effects and you have a platform with a billion users is going to be much more attractive than one that might have better moderation policies but only have a 100,000 users but i do think that that better encapsulates first amendment values than the government saying that a platform either must keep content up or must take it down
0: okay but in that case in here um in the chapter called counter speech and self help you discuss what I think nerds talk about, right, and especially conservative nerds talk about, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which, quote, protects online services from liability for content posted by third parties. Everybody's a third party, Jeff. Everybody is, right? I'm a third party on Twitter or Threads or Instagram, right? I am posting on their site.
1: Sure, and if you go and defame someone on X or on Facebook, uh, what Section 230 says is that the person can't sue X or Facebook, but they can sue you, and it shifts the burden. and I, I I wrote a book in 2019 about the history of Section 230, where there really were a few different goals. It kind of quietly got slipped into the Telecom Act in 1996 when everyone cared about local telephone competition and long distance companies, and nobody really noticed what this thing was. But it really shaped the modern internet by giving online platforms the breathing space, to be able to structure their business models around user content rather than content that they create themselves. And I think that if Section 230 went away today, I think a company the size of Facebook or Google would be able to withstand the litigation. But a smaller platform or a community news site that allows user comments could go out of business with a few, just defending a few weak defamation claims. So it's really been vital to the internet by giving that breathing space.
0: But, I mean, there's a difference, Jeff, between giving breathing space and giving these platforms and these companies the equivalent of pure oxygen and bulletproof vests, which is they've been able to grow at an unprecedented rate to control many things that we see, whether we want to or not. And so I guess my question is, look, I would like to consider myself a free speech absolutist. I don't know what that word means. I don't know what that phrase means. But I'm also, um, I do think that sometimes the good of the individual must take precedence over the good of the multi-gajillion
1: dollar corporation. Well, sure. And I think Section 230 is actually one of the main reasons that I wrote this book, because sort of right after I published my book about Section 230, it went from this obscure telecom policy issue to something that was being discussed on the national political stage. And... One of the things that I heard primarily from people on the left was that, you know, Section 230 is the reason why we have so much misinformation on the internet. And if we got rid of section 230, we could hold these platforms accountable for misinformation. And that's just not true. Now, some types of misinformation that would be true for so if it is defamatory, which is what section 230 is most commonly used to protect against, then that would be the case. But when we think about misinformation just sort of in popular Dialogue. Most of the misinformation, there is not a cause of action either against the speaker or the platform because of these strong First Amendment protections. So I wrote this book to explain why that is the case and why that is a good thing overall.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. We believe, and I would like to believe intellectually, Jeff, that I agree with you. There are moments emotionally when I don't, but let's stick with my brain and not my heart. If we know that this is going to happen, that this kind of information, misinformation, disinformation, lies, let's just call them lies what they are, are going to be allowed because in the marketplace of ideas, trying to determine what can be said and what can't, again, goes down a rabbit hole that leads to rarely good places. But with that caveat, how do we as a country and how do we as a democracy and how do we as a population survive in a time when so much of this stuff is being shoved out into the ether 24-7, 365, a lot of it for the express purpose of misleading, upsetting, dividing, inciting people? How do you counteract it? Because it can't be enough to say we have to allow this and good luck to everybody.
1: Well, it's not. I, I think that we need to make a few assumptions. One is that we're never going to fully fix the problem. I mean, with or without censorship and regulation. You, I mean, you you look everywhere from Europe to Russia to Bangladesh that all have much weaker free speech protections than the United States, and I mean, they they're not thriving, either for free speech or for democracy, frankly. And so I I think, but looking beyond regulation and censorship, there are some ways to at least partly address the problem. And whenever I say them, people say, well, that's not going to fix everything. And so I want to be clear, there's no, I wish that I had this great solution, like, oh, check a few boxes. Jeff,
0: I see the magic wand sitting on your desk. Yeah, exactly. You just
1: won't use it. So, but I mean, I I think there are things to chip away. So, I mean, I started my career out of college as a journalist at a regional newspaper, which at the time had about 400 journalists. I don't know the exact headcount, but I think it's probably close to around 50, if that, right now. And there are thousands of newspapers that are not fortunate enough to still be in existence.
0: No, and just as an aside, Jeff, I was at Thanksgiving dinner with a person who was a very senior media executive. And they said they probably knew personally a thousand quality journalists who are out of work. And that was just this one person. And so if there's a thousand, there's 10,000, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I I think that there's a lot of really structural economic problems that make it difficult because you're not going to have the classified ads and the department store back page ads that subsidize these monopoly news organizations. But I think that there have been some really interesting proposals to use the tax code and other methods to help revitalize local journalism. And obviously local journalism is not flawless. but I think at least having people on the ground who are writing about what their city council members and their state legislators and members of Congress. I spent five years covering the Oregon congressional delegation with at least one other reporter looking at every single thing they voted on, which is something that would be unheard of now. You don't have that kind of coverage, so people are not as informed. I think there are some other countries that have done a better job at ensuring that people are better equipped to understand what they're reading on the internet. And there's a lot of controversy over media literacy initiatives, because some of them, I think, frankly, are more kind of like the Ministry of Truth, where it's the government saying you must believe this one message. And I think that's wrong. But I do think that showing people, you know, if you see a claim online, this is how you research to try to find verification before you just sort of immediately believe it.
0: Before you start pumping ivermectin into your veins.
1: Exactly. And I think civics education, which is something that Justice O'Connor really spearheaded as soon as she retired from the bench, that's something where if people understand how our institutions work, they might be less likely to believe nonsense they see on the internet.
0: Well, and I've always thought too, which is how could we expect voters to understand what we're truly asking of them if they don't understand the processes and the institutions that we're asking them to support?
1: Exactly. So I I think that would go a long way. I, I also think If there's a way to at least better explain the government's message to the public clearly and transparently and build trust, that goes a long way. And I think that our government doesn't always do a great job with that being honest when you don't know what the answer is rather than saying something and then having to backtrack on it. I mean, I I think a lot of the COVID messaging over the past three or four years has been confusing and has led to a lot of people losing trust in the government so that when there's the next announcement, people are going to be less likely to believe it because they feel like the government has oversold things for so long.
0: Well, and I read that portion of your book and I, and I agree with you, which is also the willingness, you know, and this is, a, again, a broader problem. We're talking a lot of big problems in your book, Jeff, is the willingness to say I was wrong because saying that will immediately be weaponized by your opponents see we told you they never knew what they were talking about they locked you in your house they kept your kids out of school or whatever the case might be right and so it's like well we can't possibly say we were wrong even though if you said you were wrong yes that might happen but maybe also to your point people are like all right at least they admitted it like none of us knew what we were supposed to do right as we were wiping down wearing a hazmat suits the grocery store and wiping down the grocery bags before we emptied them, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And then when the vaccines came out, the immediate message was that, you know, if you get the vaccine, you're never going to get COVID. And I mean, that, that was a great message at the time, if it was true. But I think people quickly realized that, yeah, there could be benefits from the vaccine, but preventing you from ever getting COVID again is not one of them. So then when they have a booster... Are people going to be less likely to take it because they say, hey, what did the government tell me just six months ago? And so I, I think having some humility can go a long way. Let me talk about that. I was
0: going to ask you one last question, and now here we are, three questions in. Let's talk about the humility because I want to get back to the press for a second. I mean, I had a conversation years ago with some editors of a newspaper who had written a story utilizing extensive background sources. And these are background sources, candidly, that had an axe to grind. And if you looked at their background source policy, it said there in print, we don't utilize the sourcing of background if we know for a fact these people have an axe to grind. And so there I am on the record, right, telling them what happened. And they're like, but this person said something different. I said, but I'm on the record <laughs> and they're not. And they're like, Sorry.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I was a professional journalist for more than seven years, and while I obviously had sources that were anonymous and on background, I never once quoted them without quoting their real names because I felt that that really could erode trust between us and the reader. And I, I wish news organizations would not rely so heavily on anonymous sources. And then the last piece is, you know, on the on the media
0: front, and this is. A question I have for you less as a as a professor and more as a former journalist, which is when you see something like for example, you know, there was a story on i I referenced this in the last episode, you know where the New York Times says, you know questions could arise about what Trump's going to do with his pardon power in the second term, like that's a ridiculous headline because any informed voter, republican, Democrat, independent, or otherwise, knows exactly what he's going to do with pardon power in a second term, and then you allude to this a little bit. Why are media outlets so
1: hesitant to use the word lie? I thought a lot about this when I was structuring the book and how I was going to phrase things. And in part, there are different definitions of lie. When you look at the different dictionary definitions, some say it's the intent to deceive or to defraud, others just say to make a false statement. So I. In the introduction of my book, I say I'm going to try as hard as I can to talk about falsehoods just because that covers the wide spectrum. I do think that journalists, and this goes beyond sort of the legal issues in this book, there is a tendency for journalists to try to both sides everything. And I've experienced that with interviews about this book, is that journalists are a lot of my interviews have been much more you know well maybe we should reduce first amendment protections and i'm like but but you're a journalist you don't need to say that like it's okay <laughs> if you're a journalist to say that you're in the pro first amendment camp like we're not you're not going to get your journalist card taken well, away but
0: that but that speaks jeff to a willful blindness and i am going to call it willful that if a certain person returns to the white house that First Amendment protections will not be run roughshod. (laughs) I mean, this is the thing that I don't understand. Is like, guys, he's called you the enemy of the people. He calls you fake news. Do you think he's going to abide by your beloved First Amendment and your protection as journalists? And I got to be honest with you, Jeff. The answer is no, if you upset him. Those that write good things will be okay, and those that write bad things won't be.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I I try to stay out of commenting on current politicians, but but what what I'll say more broadly is that the concerns that I've heard when I've been doing a lot of discussions have been really, you know, we're in a different time now and we're really concerned about the spread across the globe of authoritarianism. And so maybe we need to rethink free speech protections because we're concerned about authoritarianism and it's just baffling to me i mean it's like saying well we're really concerned about the spread of fires so we think we need to eliminate the fire department for sure
0: you're right i mean the explanations never make sense right and and from that especially if you are a member i don't want to call a protected class that that's not the accurate expression but if you are someone whose job Right. And mission in life is dependent upon the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. The idea that you are the one undercutting it doesn't make any darn sense to me.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I think there should be a free pass for journalists to say, you know, I I like the First Amendment and you shouldn't lose your status as a journalist for taking that position.
0: Right. And again, I think that, you know, again, this is I'm going to put this in a historical context, Jeff, not in in a current day, is that. When bad things happen to democracies, it's exactly this kind of thinking that starts to take hold, which is I want to avoid the worst possible outcome. So I will do everything I can to avoid what I think is the worst possible outcome, which always leads you to what the worst possible outcome. All right, Jeff, what else are you working on aside from instructing America's future men and women in the United States Navy. What else is going on?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm continuing to look at free speech, um, not just in the United States, but globally. It's hard to separate the protections for free speech in the United States from the rest of the world. And we're seeing some really scary things happening, not just in the places where you would expect there to be crackdowns on free speech, but Europe, for example, has just implemented this massive new regulation of online platforms, and there's this unelected bureaucrat who every few days from the European, European Union threatens platforms when he sees some speech that he doesn't like. It, it's unclear how he's going to use this power, but it's something that the law that just went into effect would mean that they could be fined up to 6% of their global annual revenue for a violation, which is painful. So I I think that we're really seeing attacks on free speech all around the world, and I I think that unfortunately, too often, on all sides of the partisan spectrum, we see people focused on their short-term partisan goals and don't step back and say, you know, all of this on all sides is getting pretty scary, and we need to figure out what the principles are.
0: Right. And it's hard to maintain... You know, I'm trying to think of a bad metaphor here, but, you know, it's hard to stand up in the wind with your flag right when it blows 50 miles an hour to your left and 50 miles an hour to your right and 50 miles in your face and 50 miles from your back. Right. Trying to stand up straight can be awful hard. And I'd like to say that it's going to get easier. The winds are going to die down sometime soon. But I think we're we're in for a squall of some size and duration. Jeff Kossif, thank you so much for joining me. Where can we find you on, on social media if you dare to go there or where can, else can we find your work online?
1: Uh, I'm on social media less, which is a great uh, test of the marketplace of ideas. But my website is jeffkossoff.com and I have links to all of my articles there.
0: All right, gang, as always, you can find me still for the time being on Twitter at Reed Galen, on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and on Substack at The Homefront. I hope you will check it out and sign up. Jeff Kossif, thanks for joining me. Thanks
1: so much for having me.
0: Everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.